Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 28 to 43, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Calm Before the Storm. We've all heard the expression, the calm before the storm. You know, in some parts of the world, just before a major storm hits, there is an eerie calm in which all is quiet, there's a lull. And here's an example. Before a tornado hits, it's often the case that the wind dies down and the air becomes remarkably still, and sometimes even the birds stop singing. Now, of course, not all storms are preceded by a calm. I do know that, and so do you. But I'm using it as an example of what happens in the end of Acts chapter 9. There is a storm that's coming, starting in Acts chapter 10, that's going to blow so hard, it's going to win countless millions of Gentiles to faith in Christ. And just to confuse things a bit, it's not as if the end of chapter 9, the situation in the church is, is altogether calm, ministry is going on, Saul of Tarsus has come to Christ, that's a big deal. He's shown up in Jerusalem. He's been welcomed by Peter and James. And the rest of the chapter is going to see Peter involved in very meaningful and life-transforming ministry. But the end of chapter 9 really does describe a kind of a lull. See, up till now, as we've been studying the book of Acts, everything appears quite purposeful with an eye to bringing the gospel to the rest of the world. The church is founded in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The church in Jerusalem grows to become the most significant spiritual movement in the city. Then comes an intense persecution in which many believers are driven out of the city. And they go about preaching the gospel in Jewish synagogues and among the Jews of the diaspora wherever they go. And so in accordance with Jesus' own words in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, They were to be witnesses of Jesus beginning in Jerusalem, then going to Judea, then to Samaria, and then going to the ends of the earth. And so, following Jesus' instructions, we've seen the church of necessity expand into Judea and beyond. And when I say and beyond, up to this moment in Acts, the beyond largely deals with the Jewish communities scattered beyond Judea into Syria and also, I would imagine, into the Jewish communities in places like Egypt. But then we also saw Philip the Evangelist. He's called to go into Samaria, and the Samaritans, half-Jews, see their own revival. And then comes the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And his conversion, Jesus has spoken and said, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. But that moment has not yet arrived. And we've noticed that Saul was called into the desert of Arabia, where for three years the risen Jesus has been training him. And we would expect at that moment, we would find the first breakthrough into the Gentile world, but instead we have a calm before the storm. And I do say it's calm because we're going to read Acts 9.31, that the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. See, for a period of time, the initial outbreak of persecution had come to an end. It was a calm before the storm. There were political reasons for the peace. So let's assume that Luke's statement of the calm in the church takes place between A.D. 36 and 37. And the Jewish historian Josephus gives us some background into that. In A.D. 36, 
Pontius Pilate lost his office. Rome replaced him with a man named Vitellius. So you might remember that I indicated that the stoning of Stephen was probably possible because Pontius Pilate was in trouble with the politicians in Rome. And so knowing that there was a vacuum of power, the Sanhedrin would have felt emboldened to stone Stephen to death without any fear of ramifications. They also would have been emboldened to begin a campaign of persecuting the church out of existence. But now Pilate is gone. Vitellius, unlike Pilate, wanted to promote law and order and stability in Israel. And so as soon as he assumed his office, he actually replaced Caiaphas as the high priest, believing the man needed to be ousted. And he did because Caiaphas had created chaos. Remember, it was Caiaphas who gave leadership in stoning Stephen, but also in the crucifixion of Jesus. And with this change, at least for a period of time, the church basks in the sunlight of laws that protect the peace of the region. So let's stop and consider the wonder of this moment. You know, we, the people of Jesus, are not promised that we're always going to live in peace. But there are moments of it. And furthermore, the next era, that is the taking of the gospel to the Gentiles, had not yet begun. So what would the church do in such a moment of pause when it seems at least for the time being, everything's on hold, what do they do now? Well, the answer comes in the end of Acts 9, in which the church needs to be faithful in those things that it's been called to do. Keep winning people to Jesus. Keep being faithful in ministry. Don't abandon the foundation upon which the church was built. Indeed, what I see the church doing in the end of chapter 9 is two things. First, I see them raising up and defending new leaders. And second, I see them involved in making Jesus known, in deepening and strengthening the ministry by proclaiming Jesus to the sick and the dying. So let's start with Acts 9, 28 to 31. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So verse 28 began with, He went in and out among them at Jerusalem. And that, of course, is referring to Saul of Tarsus. Once Barnabas had taken him under wing and introduced him, not only to various Christians, but also to Peter and James, And once Saul was recognized, perhaps already as an apostle, well, he's given access to teaching and preaching in the Christian community in Jerusalem. So room was made for him to minister. And Paul was a master at the Old Testament. He had been, by now, both trained by the leading rabbi of the day, that is, Rabbi Gamaliel, and now, for three years, he was trained by the risen Jesus. And I would have loved to have been there to hear that man preach. After all, you might remember what he said in Galatians 1 verse 12. For I did not receive it, that is the gospel that he preached, from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. See, we notice that Paul seems to be taking over where Stephen, the first martyr, had ended his ministry. Paul is now ministering among the Greek-speaking Jewish community in Jerusalem. And it is, as we remember, within this community that persecution had first arisen. 
And you have to believe that the Greek synagogue in Jerusalem was made up of zealous and unyielding opponents of Jesus. These people were cruel, and they were not averse to using violence to stop the spread of the gospel. Saul must have known all about this. And remember, he was once a part of this kind of people group. Now he's being bold. And as Luke records the events, they decided just as they had killed Stephen, they would now kill Paul. And so when a group of believers learned about that, they were quick to protect Paul. They didn't want history to repeat itself. And so they took him northwest to the Roman city of Caesarea. It was a seaport city on the, on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. The city had a large seaport. It was often used to bring Roman troops in and out of Israel, as well as a great many other commercial goods. And so from there, they put Paul or Saul on a ship bound for Tarsus, where for the time being, he would be safe. And that's where Luke breaks in and mentions that the church in Judea, that is the church in the south part of Israel, and then in Galilee, in the north part of Israel, and in Samaria, in the central regions, it had peace. But I notice that Luke doesn't say that all these churches had peace. Rather, he says the church had peace. See, from Luke's perspective, all these local gatherings of believers all made one church. The church is one. The many meet in various locations, but Luke speaks of one church. And it's that kind of language that we find not only in Luke, we also find in all of the later Pauline letters. And that reminds me of a wonderful hymn written by Samuel John Stone in the year 1862 called The Church's One Foundation. You know, in the second verse of that hymn, Stone wrote, Elect from every nation, yet one o'er all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. I mean, those rich and deep penetrating truths remind us what Luke tells us, one church, The church was not yet elect from every nation that was to come, but even now it had a common charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, partaking of the same ordinances of the Lord's table and baptism. Much grace was in the one church. See, in this time of peace, Luke tells us the universal church of Jesus was being built up. Doctrines were taught, people were believing, holiness was growing. The lull before the storm was a very important time. We want to extend thanks to all those who take the time to encourage us. Here's a special note we just received. As I was listening, my heart was filled with much excitement, joy, peace, and encouragement. Thank you for teaching us the Word of God. We're so thankful to hear responses like this from people all over Canada. And we're thankful for those who give financially so that Back to the Bible Canada can continue to impact lives across this nation and beyond. You're joined by thousands who have a commitment to the importance of teaching God's Word. Your gifts and your prayers are critical. So please continue to support this program so that others would grow closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Rather than telling us what Saul did when he arrived in Tarsus, Luke brings us back to the situation in Israel. He wants us to concentrate on the ministry of Peter. 
After all, at this stage, it was Peter who had been given primary leadership in the church. Peter has met with Saul for two weeks, and now Peter has left Jerusalem, the city, and he's traveling throughout Israel. This is the calm before the storm, which will suddenly and unexpectedly open the door to the Gentiles. But as I've said, this is still the calm. So let's read Acts 9, 32 to 35. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. See, I love how this passage begins. Peter, says Luke, is going here and there among them all. He's going from Judea to Samaria to Galilee, places where the church has begun, and he's seeking to make sure that they are being taught well and all on the same page. And when he arrives, he encounters people in need. Peter has come to Lydda, so where's that? Well, I'm going to say it's some 17 kilometers south and east of Joppa. But don't throw up your hands in despair saying, well, that doesn't help because I have no idea where Joppa is. So hang on, because in just a little while, we're going to see where it was that at Joppa, the great wind that would blow into the Gentile world would start. So give me some time and I'll take you to Joppa. But for now, Peter is 17 kilometers from Joppa. He's come to strengthen the church in Lydda. No doubt he's going to take some time there. We don't know how this church in Lydda began. It doesn't seem it was because of Peter. It might well have been that Philip the Evangelist was the one who was active and had won people to faith in Christ there. Notice also that at this time, even though, you know, I've used the phrase Christian community, up to this point in time, the believers are not yet called Christians. We're going to read about that in Acts 11, verse 26, where in the city of Antioch in Syria, the believers will there first be called Christians. So here in Lydda, Luke simply calls them the saints. That's to say, everyone who believed in Jesus is a saint. A saint is one who's made holy in Jesus. That's how believers were called. And so Peter arrives, and he's about to strengthen the saints. They're going to need more emphasis on doctrine, more teaching about grace, a greater understanding of what it means to belong to Jesus. But that doesn't mean that Peter's unaware of the real needs of people. You know, look, the Christian church always must be a confessional church. And by that, I mean that the first task of the church is to teach and preach the unchanging principles of the gospel. That's to say the church must be doctrinal where the great doctrines of historic Christianity are not being taught, the church soon falls into neglect and false teachers are allowed to flourish. And this is crucial. We notice that faith in Jesus does not mean, however, that we neglect those who are in need. So here's a paralyzed man. And Luke, who's himself a physician, simply tells us that he's been this way for eight years. Not since birth, but something must have happened to him. And Peter simply says, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise, make your bed. And that's what happened. And apparently what had happened to Aeneas was well known in Lydda. And so many in that town, in the neighboring town, also turned to the Lord. So Peter finishes his ministry there. And then he travels the 17 kilometers to Joppa. You know, in today's term, Joppa, it's now called Jaffa. It's essentially a suburb of modern day Tel Aviv. It's right along the Mediterranean Sea, and it's some distance from Jerusalem. So let's read Acts 9, 36 to 43. 
Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, there's a little note that escapes many Bible readers. Now, here's a woman named Tabitha. When you translate the name, it comes out Dorcas. Well, does that leave you scratching your head? But let's put it into modern terms that we can easily grasp. Her Hebrew or Aramaic name is Tabitha, and the Greek name is Dorcas. Since Luke says she has died and that her body is laid in an upper room, we know that she's just died. See, we know that because Jews bury on the same day as death occurs. And since Peter is a three-hour walk away, well, they quickly go to get word to him and he immediately comes. It tells me how receptive the apostles were to the real needs of people. You know, it's been said that the mark of a good Christian leader is that he smells like sheep. It means he spends a lot of time with God's people. He cares. He wants to be with. He's not aloof from the struggles that people go through. So when Peter hears of the death of a faithful servant of Jesus, he doesn't hesitate. He may be in the midst of ministry, but the needs of individuals and the griefs they feel is so important to him. Now, normally, when preparing a body for burial, the Jews would anoint it with some kind of a fragrance before the burial would happen. But Luke makes no mention of that, only that she was washed. And one has to wonder at this moment whether or not, knowing that Peter the apostle of Jesus was in the area that that some were holding out hope of some kind of a miracle. Of course, all Christians have a hope that goes beyond death, but, but here there's a hope that Christ will raise this dead woman. You know, if my analysis is right, we have to wonder how it came to be that perhaps some were expecting something like this. After all, why was there such a rush to get Peter from Lydda to Joppa? It was probably the case that by this time, the believers in Joppa had heard about what had occurred to the paralyzed man in Lydda. At any rate, Peter arrives and they take him up to the upper room where Tabitha is laid. The widows were standing there and weeping. You know, widows in that day were identified with a specialized widow's clothing. I've been in countries where that is the custom. But they're showing Peter the clothing that Tabitha had made. You know, she was a woman who cared for the needs of others and was supplying those who were in need. And there can be no doubt that these widows would have been cared for by Tabitha. Her kindness was noticed and her death was a loss at so many levels. See, I don't think these widows were telling Peter that, you know, he needed to raise her from the dead because, you know, if anyone deserves it, this woman does. You know, in truth, none of us merits God's grace. That's not what's being said here, I don't think. Rather, what's being said is that this is not just a normal funeral. Our sense of loss is now so great for so many reasons. Our weeping isn't a show, it's real. But what about the miracle? Are we to think that because of this, that raising people from the dead is something that Christians can expect today? 
You might remember from Matthew 10, the instructions that Jesus gave the 12 when he sent them on their first ministry assignment. Verse 7 and 8 records Jesus saying, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And so just as Jesus had done, the apostles were to do the same. And so what Peter does here really is just a fulfillment of the command that he had received from Jesus himself. Okay, but are we to assume that modern-day believers can also do the same? Look, it's true that the Holy Spirit does give gifts that, you know, as 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us that there are some gifts that include healing and the discerning of spirits. But nowhere are we told that there is a gift of raising of the dead. There are some miracles that I think only the apostles could do, and I, for my part, do not think that the raising of the dead should be a practice that contemporary believers should attempt to do, nor do I have any evidence that after the apostolic era that there was ever a time when such a practice was successful. And so while I would say that, you know, this miracle is reserved only for the apostles, I'm also quick to point out that whatever gifts God gives his church, let's be faithful to him in the calm before the storm. Let's commit that whether we're on the cusp of something great and exciting that God is doing in our era, or whether it seems to be that things are going on as ever before, let's remain faithful and carry on the ministry that he has commanded us to do. John, thanks for your message. Let me ask you this. You know, we hear of churches today who actively believe that they can raise the dead. What would you say to that? <laughs> yeah, I do know that there was a recent case like that where a you know well-known church, and they went public, and it was picked up by the secular papers. And, and of course, it ended badly, as almost all of those do. Uh, can God raise the dead today? Yes, but we find nowhere in the Scripture a command that we should do so. I think we're best off to recognize that the uh, stories that we have in the Bible of the raising of the dead, um, those stories are given to us to assure us that there is a final resurrection of the dead. Instead of going around trying to raise the dead, we should recount the uh, events like the raising of Lazarus or ultimately the final resurrection of Jesus and give assurance to those that stand around caskets that there is a resurrection coming that God will not fail. That's the better way, the only way to go. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Do you want to hear answers to some of the most requested questions Back to the Bible Canada receives from our listeners? Well, this May, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing a special four-episode video series called Ask Dr. John, responding to the questions on your heart and mind, questions about salvation, the church, finding strength in difficult days, and so much more. And you can take the opportunity to participate by sending your questions to info at backtothebible.ca or just giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. You can access this upcoming series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. 
And to ensure you never miss a video episode from Dr. John, subscribe to Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.